Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast. Again, we're off the mat, and today we're going to start the tackling of the subject of Osensei's mysticism. If you remember from earlier podcast, I said, aside from any kind of technical deviation, which in my opinion has occurred following the passing of O-sensei, meaning Aikido, tactical architectures, or its kihonwaza, has through the years changed from what the founder was doing. In particular, there was the use of internal skills present in the founder and the chasing after of internal skills, whether that be kokyu or whether that be aiki or both. Today's Aikido is marked mostly by external fulcrums and levers and the utilization of momentum to create moments of unbalance. Of course, the ancients did not do the art this way because that kind of art is very impractical. As it is relying upon external fulcrums and levers, it is nothing more than the combat of mechanical advantages and very poor ones are gained externally, meaning somebody who is stronger or faster, heavier, is going to be able to outperform your Aikido Waza. This fact was not lost upon the ancients and hence why they developed and oriented themselves upon the cultivation of internal skills. Aikido architecture as you see it performed today is more marked, as I said, by the use of momentum, but in truth When it comes to training, it is mostly marked by choreography and cooperation. Cooperation was always a part of the training in tactical architectures going all the way back to China, but the collusion, the level at which it occurs, and more importantly, the need for its happening is taking place at degrees radically different from when the founder practiced. But one more deviation or departure from the founder's art, probably more profound in how far we have come from it, 
And we have come far from the cultivation of internal skills. But this second deviation is like comparing an ocean to a river. And it is how far we've come from the founder's religiosity. It reminds me of either a tinkerer with an engine or maybe even early human surgeons who look at something, some sort of organization, without understanding it. And goes in, performs some sort of tinkering or some sort of surgery, not knowing what parts work with what parts. Being able to identify the individual parts, but not being able to understand their codependency or their interdependency and simply go about removing them. All under the assumption that one, they're removable, and two, that their absence plays no role or has no negative consequences in the outcome. Different from most people, I would say that the tendency towards Aikido's martial invalidity is an extension from its religiosity being dissected out. It is not the case that one is being chosen over the other. It is the case that one has been neglected and what we are left with is something rotting. So what was O Sensei's religiosity? That's the beginning of this likely multi-part podcast. I think there's some people out there who are very interested in it, but I think they have a very small view of it. And hopefully through this podcast, they might look broader or more broadly and come to do the necessary historical research to help enlighten the rest of us more. Again, my past, I did 12 years of postgraduate studies in Japanese religious culture, and by extension then, my work included research in Indian religious traditions, Chinese religious traditions, world religions, etc. And by the twists and turns of life and decisions that I felt were the right ones for me, I gave up that academic 
practice, in many ways for the sake of my Buddha practice. As I've written elsewhere, I did not and do not feel that one can be an academic and a practitioner. And so I made the choice to stop being an academic. On the one hand, I think structurally the two are actually antithetical to each other. This is primarily because the practitioner of this kind of technology of self should be dealing and does deal with things that are beyond the intellect. Whereas the intellect is the realm of the academic. So in many ways, what the academic writes or says might be able to be used as a pointer for the practitioner. But in other ways, what the academic says or writes will ultimately be an obstacle to the practitioner. And this has been repeatedly said throughout the centuries of human religiosity. But two, there's also just the practical dilemma of time. Because the intellect and the totality of this religiosity are at odds, and because it takes so much time to do the necessary research and to write it in an appropriate way, a way accepted by the academy, you are in essence choosing not to practice for the majority of your days and for the hours of those days. And just out of pure practicality due to the limitation of hours per days, no good academic is a good practitioner. But those 12 years of postgraduate studies have undoubtedly lent themselves to my own path as a practitioner. And though for me I have abandoned them while seeing their utility in some ways, nevertheless seeing them as a waste of time, I find myself, when I do read, reading the works of academics, whose research is inferior and whose conclusions are very greatly unfounded due to a lack of that inferior research. And I see this trend when people are talking about O-sensei's writings or O-sensei's history. Their conclusions are not taking place within 12 years of 
postgraduate research. They're based on very small periods of history, maybe even just an example of one writing or based upon one class one took as part of a BA degree. A lot of it is taken or based upon translations that themselves were questionable. There's no long duration view. There's no real critical thinking. There's no self-reflexive historiography or sociology. So this episode will not only help my own Deshi understand the art as a practitioner, which I am one, and as a mentor to them, how I understand the art, but it may inspire some of those people who are interested in the history of O-sensei or in the intellectual curiosity generated by his writings to start looking in other very related places, places that will help one understand the bigger picture, the historical context, and thereby to understand what O-sensei was saying and not saying. So at the start, I talked about and I have up till now many times talked about O-sensei's mysticism. Undoubtedly, as moderns, especially as moderns that have only been partial to a very limited history of O-sensei, the concept or the position that O-sensei was a mystic is controversial. That controversy for me proves how far we have deviated from the founder's religiosity, and how complete the Aikikai's efforts have been in making that possible and making it real. Today it is not out of the ordinary to see somebody very devoted to the art, wherein the founder is claimed to have or to hold a very central position in the practice of their art. But wherein the founder is rewritten or redrawn, re-understood as not being mystical, not being theistic. but just another example of the triumph of secularism and materialism and a mechanical worldview. The irony is, of course, that the founder was well aware of those movements as they were in their early states of formation or at least in the early states of their coming domination 
and was clearly against them. You would think if we were historically sound, we would have our external, mechanical, materialist Aikido and we would be forthright in saying well, we've moved beyond the founder. But we don't see that. In the same way, many modern practitioners can denounce mysticism, even when their art is very lacking in martial ability. Because as good moderns, you're going to be anti-mystical. Mystic, mysticism, mystical, these are all derogatory words. So even in non-martial arts, there is a denouncing of those concepts. And yet no denouncing of the founder. The founder has been rewritten, re-understood, reshaped into a modern digestible form. And as such, we lie to ourselves about who and what he was and who and what the art was to him. All the while being able to hold him up as central to our practice. Like this, the founder becomes a kind of political capital, capital, a flag we can rally under. But one in which we truly do not believe. Mysticism is the word that religious scholars give to a particular aspect of human religious practice. It is a word derived from early mystery cults. The practice goes way back. Many scholars of religions have noted, and it has made sense to me as well to keep this idea, that the institution, what ultimately becomes the institution of religion and the practice of religion was originally grounded in a particular kind of human experience. The locale for this experience has been said to take place in the mind. But due to the nature of the experience, it is difficult to describe in words And it is difficult to describe to another who has not had the experience. 
when words are used, it's not uncommon to see them used poetically or to see them used in what us moderns would call a mythical discourse. Primarily, we're talking about a language that through sound and association is capable of multiple meanings simultaneously that also includes the very negation of the statement itself. And with those statements throughout human history, even after they are uttered, even immediately after, you will tend to see the caveat that says, these words are not enough. These words fall short. These words are actually incorrect, deceptive, and you will need to move beyond them and outside of them. Different religious traditions throughout history have defined or described this experience in multiple ways. Again, you're looking at the poetics of something that is beyond language. It defies language because ultimately language is binary. in its structure, or more accurately, because language ultimately makes use of the subject-object dichotomy. And the experience that is being described, psychologically speaking, is about a deconstruction or a reconciliation or a dissolving of the subject-object dichotomy. Hence, language is antithetical to it, and hence why so many times when language is used, it's coded and seeks out multiple layers of meaning. But scholars of religion have held that it is this experience of the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. In other words, to experience the world and to experience period outside of that dichotomy is what is at the source of what later comes to be a religion. Because this was more well-known or initially well-known via the Greek mystery cults 
that experience is denoted as the mystical experience. And as I said, it is present across time and across the globe. It is something particular to the human being. brought about by the particular structures of the human mind or of human consciousness. And this experience, as I said, has happened everywhere. You can have it without even seeking for it. It has been described by people who are under great stress or great moments of ecstasy. It has been described by people who did not ask for it and did not seek it. And it came without reason or want. And it has been described by people who have sought it chemically. And once it is experienced, the reality of that experience and the perception that is contained therein is felt so truly and so wholly and yet so different from our normal experience that it comes to be the real world. Our experience of the world through the subject-object dichotomy, through that experience, is exposed as falsity, as delusion, and as ignorance. This potency comes to outweigh normal life. Some of those people that have that experience through the happenstance of history, come to draw others. Through the, through the promise of the really real, they come to seek it for themselves. 
Sometimes the mystic has no one around him or her. Sometimes one or twelve or four. Sometimes whole communities form. But we know from the historical record that not everyone comes to have this experience. In fact, we know very few do. Even within whole communities aimed at achieving it, It is from within this community of people who did not achieve the experience that you get your early formulations of dogma and doctrine and behavioral code. and the formation of groups that specialize in those things. Monks and priests. Experts, not in the experience themselves, but experts in what evolved out of it. And following that, you have people outside of the community, people not seeking the experience, but people who want to know the codes and the doctrine and the dogma, your academics. I think it's important to understand that there is this kind of natural sociological evolution that happens whenever we're talking about something that is beyond language, that is antithetical, actually, to dogma and doctrine, but then evolves through a community of non-achievers into an institution of practice that then later becomes a topic of study for non-practitioners. We need to understand that there is this sociological evolution in religion from the mystic to the priest to the academic because depending on who we are studying, we will come out with something entirely different.
In my opinion, it's always best to stay as close to the mystic as possible. And this would mean to then participate in the practice of mysticism. But this is from the point of view of wanting to understand that initial experience, wanting that experience yourself. If your interest is in the priestly formations of an institution, then study that, but know you will have nothing valid to say about the original mystical experience. And worse, if you come from the academic point of view, while interesting, know that that is a meta-discourse meant to take place within its own systems of meaning and cultural and symbolic capital, within the ivory halls of the academy, having little or nothing to do for real with the people on the ground, and definitely little or nothing to do with the original mystical experience. Going back to this idea of the centrality of the mystical experience in the formation of religions. This was not only a view held by scholars for a very long time, but in the early 20th century, following World War I, It was the view of mystical practitioners themselves, meaning when they were reflecting upon who and what they were, they had this own view. And of course, there was crossover between scholars, not practitioners, holding that view, coming from groups of people that included people who held that view and considered themselves practitioners seeking that experience. Meaning, the early scholars of the history of religions or of religious studies in the West did come from groups of people that were seeking the experience of the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy and were by that aim looking at all the ways that experience was achieved or said to be gained throughout the world. Those practitioners held that there was a common 
aspect to human religiosity that it was this experience of reconciling the subject-object dichotomy and that you could thereby travel the world and travel history, find that commonality, and through a multiplicity of views and practices that all pointed to that commonality, come to better achieve that experience yourself. Some of the high points of this effort took place in Chicago at the Parliament of World Religions. Again, my historical efforts here are just for context. They're not meant as academic or meeting the validity of academic requirement. But in short, the possibility that the world could go to war And the presence and reflection upon the invention of mechanical warfare that included machine guns and tanks and airplanes and the ensuing capacity to murder millions shocked the consciousness of the world. And unlike today, where the secular worldview has come to so dominate, that was not the case during this time period. In fact, today the secular worldview looks back incorrectly at history and makes and holds the argument that religion has been the cause of war and has killed more than ever before and that secularism is the way to stop that murder. But the historical record does not support that. You're looking at the discourse written by the winning side. And so... Following World War I, when people were faced with the horrors of war for political reasons alone, and war that was amplified and accelerated through the use of technological invention, people smelled the opposite. It was the loss of religion that led to such tragedy and horror.
because religion was understood as extending from this universal human experience. Whereas being British or being German at the apex of the industrial age meant only division. And division meant the possibility of war. What these people, people, for example, who attended the world parliament, or I'm sorry, the parliament of world religions in Chicago, were doing in their minds was trying to find communion among people who ignorantly felt themselves to be different and opposed to each other. And since the horrors of this war were for the most part sectioned to the colonial powers And since those colonial powers, through their self-reflections, observed themselves to be negatively impacted by the Age of Enlightenment, Descartes' prioritization on the intellect and the mind, and on the negative side of a Darwinian sociological evolution. They felt it important to look at cultures and religious traditions further back in their own history and to religious practices that were then associated with cultures lower in their minds in the evolutionary current of society. And for this reason, there was a rebirth in Christian mysticism, particularly via the study of the monastics that practiced their religion that way. And there was an attraction to the religions of Asia, of India, of China, of Japan. With World War II, at least potentially on the horizon, and struggling with the unconscious adoption of Darwinian social worldviews or Darwinian politics, colonialism starting to be shaken but not 
rejected. Many people from Asia took advantage of this opportunity to participate in the world arena for determining truth and the future. Where before they were given no voice, they now had center stage. The impact of that opportunity in terms of how we moderns have come to understand religion cannot be overemphasized. And it has led to many difficulties in understanding what we're actually dealing with, making it now impossible to simply ask a Hindu what Hinduism is or to ask a practitioner today what the Motokyo is in order to understand what the Motokyo was for O-sensei. Meaning, as practitioners from Asia now had, if not an equal footing in the world political scene, and some repeated simply what they were doing, others were very motivated to make it fit into modern and by which we there mean western slash industrial age discourse by extension this is for example how you get D.T. Suzuki and through him a very popular still understanding of Zen by people who never practiced it in Japan or even in China. To the point where it's not uncommon for these people to go to, to want to go to a monastery or a temple, get there, feel all the discipline requirements, the way behavior is entirely rule-governed, 
experience the domination of work in the overall practice and have no problem telling the abbot, this isn't Zen, I gotta go. Well, the new religions of Japan and as every new religion must sought a kind of legitimization and this new idea adopted by the cultures that were dominating the political field let us say motivated some of them to understand their religious tradition in that way Now, my practice of historiography is that culture is much more complicated than just there's bad guys and good guys and there's selfish intent and conspiracy, power struggles, behind the scenes. This is a very adolescent historiography. It is not one that is sophisticated enough to capture what is actually taking place. So let me go into a little more detail. Yes, on the one hand, there is this common human experience, this mystical experience. Yes, it is often further evolved by communities, through priests, and later by academics. And through hundreds of years, manifests itself as what we moderns would call a religion. And two, there is this idea that at the beginning of the 20th century, a lot of people were looking for manifestations of that mystical experience across the globe in an effort to unite the world and to cease the possibility of those horrors of war that they just witnessed and suffered through. And there, while there were some religions that evolved out of the mystical experience, there were others that came to seek it at that moment. 
in order to participate in this world movement, which is a righteous one. And there I would place many of Japan's new religions, Omoto-kyo being one of them. So zeroing in on Japan at this point, I would say for all intents and purposes there were aspects of what later became Shinto that had nothing to do with this mystical experience. But that later, by the time of the earliest 20th century, came to be understood as describing it and as leading to it. Now that said, going back even further, before Japan even became imagined as a Japan, the foundations for that understanding were already in place. by 6th century BCE China. So, you have this kind of invention, but it's not out of thin air. The foundations were there, and they came to be reworked, or utilized according to this emerging discourse. So the caveat here is to be careful with any discourse on the eruption of genius for understanding this history. And to be careful with any kind of temporal or geographic specificity attributed to an individual such as O-sensei. But to also be careful so as not to deny the uniqueness or the specific context of that period in time. And underneath all of that, to remember that the mystical experience is not brought closer to us 
by such historiography. And therefore, to note that historiography need not be and probably should not be a part of our true practice. Now, that was a lot of some very complex historical pointers. But for me, all of that is very relevant regarding how to understand O-sensei and why most modern Aikido practitioners do not understand O-sensei, in particular, as a mystic. And for those that do, they understand him only as an Omoto-kyo practitioner and thus look to his coded poetics that are Omoto-kyo derived as something central to understanding the art. My position would be, yes, O-sensei is a mystic, but there is nothing central to Omoto-kyo poetics in terms of understanding the art. Omoto-kyo poetics becomes only important for the historian or the academic or the priests of Omoto-kyo. People not after the mystical experience, the experience the founder had and held central to his art. So let's go deeper into what this mystical experience is or how it is described. Again, if you look across the human and the historical record, one way of capturing all of them is as I have done thus far, which is the common way of understanding it in the history of religions. It is the experience of the disillusion or the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. Now, those who are not partial to a philosophy background, and again, poetically, this experience is trying to describe, or this phrase is trying to describe the sense or the experience of communion between you, the observer, and what is being observed, or you, the feeler, and what is being felt.
Again, poetically, throughout time, you hear things as there's no separation between the doer and what is being done, between the doer and the done. If again, if you look at the historical record, you'll just you'll you'll see the poetics will often make use as I said, of language that is attempting through binary structure, through ultimately binary structure, to capture the dissolution of binary structures in total. So you'll see a mentioning of various aspects some sort of division. Sometimes it's two, three, four. Sometimes it's five. It goes on and on. Where something, usually the totality of all things, is divided. But then is told, ultimately, that there is no division between them. So within the experience, and what is trying to be described, and again, this is ultimately incorrect, but you have what psychologists have called the experience of a metacognition alongside the initial cognition and the line between the two becomes indiscernible. such that in some ways you're both seeing it and observing yourself see it simultaneously without division. But this occurs across all levels of perception. And this is why any description of what you are experiencing falls short. So you get this kind of coded language. But it always kind of follows this mathematical rule. The totality of everything is divided up and then ultimately told no such division exists. And in some ways, the divisions are valid and as much an expression of the experience 
as is the communion of the divisions. Again, logically, mathematically, this makes no sense, but at an experiential level, there is no contradiction. Our emphasis on the intellectual understanding such that the contradiction exists is how us moderns think. But early discourses on this mystical experience, discourses that are refined through countless people and through centuries, do not utilize our scientific epistemy. And so they appear, their discourses appear contradictory. But it is because we are not coming at it from the point of view of experience. We're coming at it from our post-enlightenment prioritization of the intellect. Wherein our mind and our bodies are already divided from each other. In other words, we are predisposed, us moderns, to not getting this. So here are some quotes by Osensei in what I would consider to be probably the most reliable English translations of Osensei's words. These sections or these quotes are taken from a translation that Stanley Prannon did with others which were the transcription of a series of talks that O-sensei did, which they titled Takamusu Aiki. I'll provide a, a page or links to this page so you can read them for yourselves. But if I remember correctly, the caveat that Stanley Prannon gave regarding other translations of O-sensei's words, it should, it's important and should be mentioned here. So what most people read today is usually text that was put forth by John Stevens utilizing text that was already manipulated by others, others central to the Aikikai political group. If you were doing a history of O-sensei's words or philosophy or anything to do with him, 
in any kind of PhD program, and that was your source, if you had a mentor worth their salt, you would not be allowed to do that project. As no scholar worth their salt would, would take a translation of an edited text as an original source. If you wanted to use John Stevens' words, the, your project would have to shift, and your the, your your title of or your abstract would be on how was O Sensei's words or ideas modernized through translation and editing. In other words, John Stevens' text would be the topic of your study and not the sources for your study. So in the links that I'm going to provide in the episode description, you'll, you'll see how Stanley Prandon came up with these translations. And uh, I'm afraid as an English reader, these are as good as it's going to get. But these are pretty good. Not having the source material with me, as a scholar of 12 years in the history of Japanese religious culture, I can say that I do not see anything inconsistent with that religiosity in these translations. Nothing is standing out. Whereas usually when you read John Stevens, you go, oh, that, that's just coming out of nowhere. I don't see that here. So these are quotes from that text. And you're going to see that O-sensei is not really talking like a Shinto priest might. Especially a Shinto priest prior to movements such as the Parliament of World Religions. That if you really want to understand the experience that O-sensei is talking about, for very concrete historical reasons, you're going to probably be closer to the mark if you read other mystics that have written throughout human history. Meaning, for example, Chuangzi and Meister Eckhart, St. Francis of Assisi, Thomas Merton, Lao Tzu, These people will probably give you more insight into what O-sensei was talking about than any priest from any, let's say, old family Shinto shrine. Because he talks just like them. 
And he means exactly what they meant. So here are some quotes. Quote, Aikido is the way of union and harmony of heaven, earth, and humanity. There you have the three divisions, heaven, earth, man. That goes way back in East Asian religiosity. Again, you see this in 6th century BCE Chinese thought. Exactly the same. There's this division, heaven and earth, man's in the middle, and these things need to be harmonized or brought into union. Usually the word that I use to translate union and harmony is communion. I think it denotes the religiosity a little bit more. But it's the sense. Again, there's three things. Three things become one. Three things are both three things and not three things. Next quote. Quote, we must understand universal truth, the true state of things, and attain oneness with the mind of God. There's a few, a few important things here. One, if you go back and you look at priestly Shinto, prior to the parliament or world religions, you don't really have a singular concept of God. This is something that grew in favor. But this is also something that predated all of those rituals that came to be part of priestly Shinto. So again, it's not being made up. But it's just one of those things that happens in history where things go in and out of favor and of practice. Because if we go back again to 6th century BCE China, you had this concept of Tian which is often translated as heaven. So in the first quote, we had heaven mentioned there. But early Chinese religiosity did not draw a distinction between Tian heaven and Tian as God. So there was a God, Tian, and he did reside in a realm, also him, his realm, Tian. And a lot today, a lot of scholars will look at the word Tian and they just give up. Like, holy cow, there's so many meanings. But again, from the mystical experience, yep, it, why would not, in the disillusion of the subject-object dichotomy, why would not Tian be everywhere and nowhere? 
So here you have again a division. It's not the, the old one of heaven, earth, man. It's the one of man and God. We must understand universal truth, the true state of things, and attain oneness with the mind of God. So there is this division with, with man and God, but ultimately it's not supposed to be there. And that communion is the universal truth, and it is the true state of things. Again, this re-emerged on the Japanese landscape in the 20th century, but it goes way back. And for those who don't know, China was central to the formation of both Japanese as a nation-state, Japan as a nation-state, the Japanese political body, and indeed, Japanese religiosity and the inclusion of Budo and thus of Aikido. For those who don't know, the characters for China mean central country or central kingdom. And that was no lie. The culture of China was central to that area and that area extended to the islands of Japan. When the Japanese nation-state was emerging and the powers that be sought political legitimacy, the only way to get it was to base everything on Chinese models. That is how central China was to this area. Next quote. In Aikido, it is absolutely indispensable that we stand on the floating bridge of heaven. This is essential for us to return to and be unified with God, who is the spiritual source, the original parent. Again, 6th century BCE, this was the, the way Tian was described. Post-Parliament of World Religions, this is the way God was described. that of a source. This whole notion of time is the same as well. That communion with the divine is a returning, meaning we were there, then we became not there, and now the goal is to be there again. As I mentioned earlier, the, the power of this experience is so potent that reality that is based upon the other experience, the experience of, of the subject-object dichotomy, becomes to feel so false, so wrong, so uh, meaningless, petty, 
And we're seeing that. So in the second quote, the true state of things. In the third quote, it's absolutely indispensable. In the floating bridge of heaven, again, I mentioned that the poetics for this type of experience will utilize some sort of division where the numerical value changes, it's irrelevant, but it does alter. It can alter even within the same practitioner. So at the beginning, we had three, heaven, earth, man. In the second one, we had two, man and God. In the third one, we're back to three because the floating bridge of heaven is, again, that which stands between heaven and earth. So you kind of have the same heaven, earth, man, tripartite division of the world or of reality present again. But you also have the two because there's us, and there's the God we have to return to. Fourth quote. Before God, we must give up our ego, freeing our mind of all thoughts, and endeavor to be able to execute divine deeds by calming our spirit and returning to God. Again, you will not find this. in any kind of priestly Shinto. You will find it in 20th century rethinking of ancient East Asian religious concepts. And you will find it in Indian religiosity, in Judeo-Christian and Islamic mystical traditions. And it is this problem of ego which is the capturing of our mind meaning of our thoughts and ultimately of our deeds. Let's read it again. Before God, we must give up our ego, freeing our mind of all thoughts and endeavor to be able to execute divine deeds by calming our spirit and returning to God. Let's read it in reversal. So, when I return to God, it is because my spirit is calmed. I have freed myself from my ego. And this will in turn free my mind. And from a free mind. And from a oneness with God. My actions themselves become divine. If you weren't aware of where this came from, I'm telling you, you would not know if you were reading Merton or Meister Eckhart.
or even the Buddha. So Aikido for O-sensei, well, let's leave that word out for now, although he mentioned it, right? He said, in Aikido, it is absolutely indispensable that we stand on the floating bridge of heaven. This is essential for us to return to and be unified with God, who is the spiritual source. So maybe we leave it in. Aikido for O-sensei. is both a means of achieving this, a means of expressing it, and simultaneously the very structural manifestation of this subject-object reconciliation. And so sometimes, as all mystics do, in the same way that tin is both this and not that, the practice itself is both this and not that. This is where an epistemic shift has happened in the formation and the domination of modernity over the pre-modern world. And that has led us to not understand what these people are talking about. This epistemic shift, I have never found a source that deals with it clearly with this in mind. With the idea that the modern or let's put it like with the idea that understanding pre-modern discourses via modern discourses is problematic. I have seen it hinted at, and the best source is Foucault's The Order of Things. I'll provide a link for that as well. And I've seen some people be very cautious in the sense that they were reflexive enough to understand that there is going to be a problem with perception when they look at pre-modern th things through modern eyes. But it would be great if someone would describe exactly where the gap is taking place. So you might hear, for example, the phrase pre-modern episteme, modern episteme, but nobody is outright telling you what it is. 
where and how to describe the logical differences or the structural differences in reasoning. In my opinion, why those students that were listening to O-sensei's lectures did not understand him It is for two reasons. One, they did not have a mystical experience. And they had no experience in the study of mystical experiences. These were young men whose nation just experienced a crippling defeat at the hands of modern powers with secular worldviews. On the landscape where Darwinian history and sociology was still in play, and the last thing that you wanted to be was old-fashioned, because there was nothing great in it. Amplify that by just the age group. There are not many, nor have there ever been, many young men ages 18 to 26 years old who have seen through the ignorance and the futility of the material world and the social structures of wills to power and said to themselves, I am after awakening. That segment of every population that has ever existed has always been problematized because that section of any population is all about rejection of tradition, self-interest. That is the population of ego duels, the lack of foresight, Almost all of our laws and rules for society is really a matter, including our traditions, particularly our warrior traditions, are a matter of harboring that segment's tendencies for the betterment of the social group. If you look at what those people said they did, what did they do? They got in ego duels, they got in bar fights, they went out drinking, they just wanted to kick ass. That, that's what that segment of population has always wanted to do. The rare prince who goes off and says, I want to reach communion with God, is exactly that, rare. So one, they did not have an experience of O-sensei's kind, which means you're not going to understand this at all. Two, they weren't interested in that experience just by their age group. 
just by their demographics. Three, historically, sociologically, they didn't want anything to do with those old ways. They're not going to understand it. But the fourth reason they don't understand it is they were full-blown moderns using a modern episteme. And O-sensei was pre-modern using a pre-modern episteme. One out of which mysticism was born and described, its discourses were generated from within. And although they both spoke Japanese, in many ways they were speaking different languages. And these young men could not understand it. It's this gap, this epistemic rift that I will go on to discuss and explain in our next episode. Stay safe. Keep training. Stay well. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentioncenter.com s-e-n-s-h-i-n-c-e-n-t-e-r.com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.